Hello, everyone, and welcome to Traces of Reality Radio on TracesofReality.com. I am your host, Guillermo Jimenez. Thank you all so much for tuning in once again and downloading today's podcast. Be sure and subscribe to the show for free via iTunes and RSS feed. You can check out the show on Facebook and Twitter. Links are up now on TracesofReality.com. On today's show, we have a special edition of TOR Radio today, a second installment of a yet-to-be-titled Supercast. I still haven't thought of a catchy name for it. Uh, I suppose we'll have to stick with the the Jimenez, Secker, Corbett roundtable. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, Tom Secker, Clandestine, SpyCulture.com. Gentlemen, how you doing? Don't all leap in at once, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I was being polite, but I should have known you would be polite as well. I'm doing very well. How about you, Tom? Yeah, I'm doing great, and it, it, good to be talking to both of you again. Yeah, this is great. No, it was a lot of fun the first time, and they got a good response. So I'm hoping that uh, people out there enjoy our discussions and will provide us with some input as to uh, you know how you want to see this uh, progress uh, what kind of topics and issues you'd like us to discuss? But for today, we've got some. Uh, we got plenty of ideas. We probably have a little too many ideas. Uh, uh, we'll we'll try to squeeze them all in in about an hour or so. Um, starting with something that you've covered recently, Tom uh, Edward Snowden, the snow job. What gives? What do you think? Well, I think he's potentially a full. <clears throat> Sorry, a false flag agent. This was the subject of my not most recent podcast, the one before, episode 14. It's called, Is Edward Snowden a False Flag? And I admit, in that episode, I was presenting something of a one-sided polemic. Um, It wasn't a balanced analysis. It wasn't trying to be a balanced analysis. I just presented the argument as it occurred to me, given what I'd found out about Snowden and his his background, his biography, and just how the whole story had played out. I mean, I'd never felt entirely comfortable with this story, and over time I thought it was worthy of putting this analysis together. Whether I'm right or wrong, that's up to other people to decide. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, <clears throat> sorry, uh, my question would be, what, do you, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, I mean, as I, as I told you, you know, I, I, I appreciated it because it got me thinking again. It's been, it'd been a while since I had stopped and looked at, at uh, Snowden's bio and sort of looked at the timeline and, and looked at those questions that you raised. Uh, I mean, I remain uh, thoroughly unconvinced, and it's no, no fault of yours, though. I mean, it's just a, such, a, such a wide open sort of question. Uh, and I'm happy to kind of go through some of the points and discuss them. I'm actually really curious as to where you're at on this, James, because I actually have no idea where you stand. I mean, I heard you mention a little something about, uh, what was it? It was some kind of blog post. Uh, it, you were talking on uh, New World Next Week, and uh, you linked to something about a Rubik's Party or, or something like this. And So I read through that, and that you know led me to a, some other article about the same thing, or the Summer of Code and this and that. So I'm curious where you're at on this, James. Yes, yes. Well, um, I'm glad you did read through that because I thought that was all very interesting. And uh, I know there is definitely more to this story. What that more to the story is, obviously, I don't know definitively. But um, but obviously, the story that we've been fed about Snowden and how he came to to leak these documents is there. There are inconsistencies all over the place, and they simply won't add up if we take the 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 different bits of the official stories that we've heard from all of the prime suspects in this, the Greenwalds and Gilmans and the like. 
So, um, so fitting that together is is obviously the question. I thought that that uh, that whole spring spring break of code thing and uh, and the Rubik's party and um, Applebaum's involvement and all this is is quite interesting, especially considering that those those recently um, leaked uh, NSA documents that the Guardian, uh, sorry, the uh, the the German publication, the <laughs> Der Spiegel, um, <laughs> yeah. used for their for their uh, their expose of that NSA catalog, according to uh, Greenwald did not come from the Snowden cache. So where did they come from, and and how did that happen? Um, that I mean, all of that is very interesting. And and the question of how Applebaum, for example, knew that they were sitting on uh, a tour story that uh, that they eventually ended up releasing because he yeah. was putting pressure on them to do so. Um, was it because Applebaum and others were part of the the pressure to, um, or or perhaps even in on the actual acquiring of these documents through Snowden. Did they have contact with him beforehand? Blah, blah, blah. All uh, brings up some interesting questions on that front. But I mean, even apart from that, I think it's quite clear to me. I've been on the fence about Snowden and maybe his, his possible use as a, as as a dupe in all of this. But I think I'm, I'm coming down at this point on the side of he's a knowing witting participant in whatever this operation is about and whoever's really running it at the end of the day. And I think this goes quite in line with the uh, the Boiling Frogs reporting on Greenwald and Omidyar and all of that. At this point, Snowden has had ample opportunity to have said, to have had his piece uh, said on whatever he thought about that. And he certainly has not used that opportunity. In fact, now he's uh, well, on the board of the, the Free Free Press <laughs> right. Association or whatever it is yeah. with Ellsberg and, and others. So I think he's, uh, he, whatever his... Whatever master he's working for, he's uh, certainly going along with it at this point. So I, I don't think that there's any excuse for, for Snowden at this point. Well, that was kind of one of the reasons why I made the podcast at this point, rather than earlier or leaving it till later, was that watching particularly the coverage that you've been doing on all of this, and then reading Sibel Edmonds' sort of open letters to Snowden, asking him, you know, come on, what have you got to say about this? This is important. This is kind of framing the entire discussion about your story. Um, these men are basically taking your apparent sacrifice in becoming a, a leaker and a whistleblower and turning it into a massively profitable enterprise. Do you not have a response to this? <clears throat> and his response was, it's mission accomplished as far as he's concerned. And at that point, I kind of felt, you know, why isn't he responding in a more nuanced and complex way? Mm-hmm. Why is he just sort of getting on board with all of this and saying that there doesn't seem to be any problem with it when he should? <clears throat> if he is what he says he is, he should have a problem with it. Because like I say, it's his sacrifice, supposedly, that's brought all this about. And if you'd done that, if you'd you know, spied for several years within the NSA and gathered up these thousands or potentially millions of documents, and then you'd leaked them to journalists, and you'd had to leave your life and flee halfway across the world to Russia, and then they were making millions of dollars selling these things, presumably you would be not entirely happy about that. You wouldn't consider it mission accomplished. And yet that was what he said. And so, yeah, it was kind of at that point in the story that I really felt now would be an opportune moment to fit together my thinking on this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it really is. It's such a, such a uh, huge question that, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it myself. And uh, I'm not, I don't know. It's just that it's hard for me to, uh, to say definitively. And I think, I think it's what that's all of us are, are been saying that so far is that we can't definitively say one way or the other. I tend to side, uh, sort of give the benefit of the doubt 
uh, and sort of assume that he is who he says he is for now until I can get it all sorted out. But there, is, there are so many different things that, that are really, really curious, not the least of which is the, what you just mentioned, Tom, the fact that this, all of this has been, uh, as Stanley uh, Cohen put it, I think he worded it beautifully, it's been stage managed by uh, a select few people. And that has done, uh, you know, done them no favors. It, it really brings a whole lot of questions into it. Uh, Piero Midiard didn't help them at all. <laughs> I mean, if if this really was some sort of op um, or something, if this was, if they if it was at all underhanded in any way from the get go, I mean, Piero Midiard really screwed this up for him, didn't he? Because I mean, before he came along, sure there were questions in my mind too about how all this was playing out, but. Once that, once he entered the picture, it really, you know, it raised a huge red flag for me, anyway, and for a lot of people, obviously. Um, but beginning with beginning with that, uh, that's when all, I mean, for me, all these questions started becoming more serious. I mean, okay, as you said, Tommy, come on, you you sacrificed this, you left your life behind, uh, you're risking, uh, you're risking your life, possible. Uh, death uh, by <laughs> several different means. Uh, you know, not it's to mention a, he'd given up his uh, beautiful pole dance. Right, right. Exactly, exactly, and all that. And you're okay with uh, at least because you haven't you haven't mentioned it. I was disappointed that no one. Uh, well, I shouldn't say no one. I'm sure someone must have thrown this question out to him that during that latest uh, Q and A session they had. I think it was yesterday, even right. The the Ask Snowden thing on Twitter. Uh, but uh, none of that was published, and he didn't respond to any of those questions. And so, yeah, to this day, um, by his silence, we can only say that he's perfectly okay with uh, Greenwald uh, in a bidding war for. And it's, it's not just Greenwald, obviously, but that's all. That's Greenwald, Poitras, Scahill, Omidyar, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in a bidding war with the movie rights and you know multi-million-dollar book deals and you know a huge media venture. He must be okay with it um because he hadn't said anything yet so that is i guess yeah that is the most troubling part about it all to me anyway to be honest i didn't follow the ask snowden thing at all um did anyone did anyone do so what what types of questions were asked or answered i didn't follow it live i did find a transcript uh, that was posted on free snowden.is and it's it's they've only published um, oh it's a handful but it's about maybe a, maybe about a dozen questions so I'm assuming that they handpicked questions and uh, they really they read like canned answers um, nothing in this uh, that I've read so far I've only read it uh, I've only perused it uh, nothing in it so far is is anything that you haven't heard already before. No, I mean, I didn't. I haven't really followed this at all. I just picked up on some of the RT coverage of it and that kind of thing. But it strikes me as as pretty strange. You're saying this this whole thing is being done by Twitter. So how does anyone even know that it's Snowden on the other end? Exactly. Yeah. Or yeah. rather yeah. than a, a P PR firm or a lawyer or a KGB agent or a CIA <laughs> agent or who, whoever else it could potentially be. Or Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, it's kind of. That's another thing that bothers me about this case is the extent to which people buy into this and buy into Snowden as this sort of, you know, great individual that we turn to in order to have the truth revealed to us. Um, mm. And this has gone completely bonkers at times with things like uh, 
certain NSA leaks being attributed to Snowden when in fact these weren't anything to do with Snowden. They were leaked by someone else and sometimes even leaked by someone else years ago. But because everything's sort of Snowden, 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 it's all about him. Um, that's how it's got reported. And James, when we, when we were in Lille, we were talking about um, that story about, was it solar flares or something? That Ed Snowden has allegedly leaked a, a great big <laughs> and solar flares and some, you know, some horse shit. I don't know. But the fact that that went mega viral, that story, is basically because it had the word Snowden in the sure, title. Sure, sure. Um, and people took it seriously. And I just, I think it's absolutely bonkers. I really do. You know, I, I don't know if that's actually part of uh, the whole false flag operation, but that would be a good test in the future. Um, if you can <laughs> just use the key word of your, of your false flag operation to, to make a ridiculous story go viral, then you're, you're probably doing something right. Mm-hmm. You mean like with the Joseph Coney thing? Potentially, yes. Although I, I don't know specifically what you're referring to, but yes. Well, I, ju- I just mean... Oh, I mean, you mean the something. Coney 2012 yeah, 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 exactly. Right, yes. And that was obviously some sort of produced viral phenomenon or yeah, engineered yes. viral phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, we can see Snowden in that same kind of context, or at least the way it's played out smacks of that kind of thing. Like you say, I'm not at all certain here. I just offered an analysis and said people can make of it what they want to. Um, but it was a, a point that hadn't been made often enough, I felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I made it. And <laughs> there, there are a few things within that biography that you mentioned, Tom, that really that strike me as, as you know, they don't they don't uh, they don't add up. They don't add up to to the personality that that has been presented to us so far. Now, a lot of it, um, I think, can be explained away as far as the inconsistencies in his past. I think a lot of it can be explained away just by, you know, the, the, the passage of time. People change their opinions, of course, uh, you know, over time. But uh, there were there are a couple of things that did strike me. Um, for example, uh, you know, you can read through uh, his Ars Technica posts, right? And I know that these these aren't entirely reliable. In fact, I think uh, uh, John Young of Crypto mentioned once in an interview uh, something unrelated. He was talking about the Manning case, I think. But he, he did go. He did mention that that chat logs are, uh, I think he said, notoriously uh, easy to fake. So I think I guess we can take it with a grain of salt, but. What we do have, uh, I think, <laughs> is is a, is revealing if it is true that these are in fact uh, uh, Snowden posting these things as the the true hoo-ha on uh, IRC uh, chat logs and Ars Technica forums. But uh, they they were posted, I think, in, in 2006 is one of them, while he is working as a security guard for, as, at an NSA complex, right? And uh, he's just he's just cracking jokes basically about NSA. Uh, surveillance. Someone's someone's asking about you know what's this sound coming from my Xbox, and he jokes, "Oh, that's the that's the NSA surveillance. That's the sound of freedom, citizen." Um, so, <laughs> I found that uh, interesting that he's here. He is joking about NSA surveillance while working uh, in some capacity, uh, you know, a security guard, but he's at an NSA uh, complex. And um, also, one that I found even more uh, interesting than that was a few years later in two thousand nine. Uh, in a in a lengthy thread, you can read through his comments. He's he's debating someone on the internet, you know, in one of these like flame wars, and he's uh, talking about how upset he is at a New York Times piece 
that uh, uh, I think WikiLeaks uh, was involved in this in publishing something about uh, Iran. I, I don't remember the details. I'm sorry. But basically, the, the important part is that Snowden came out and said, like, I can't believe the Times is doing this. They're, they're as bad as WikiLeaks. Whistleblowers or people who, who jeopardize national security should be shot in the balls. This is 2009 after he claims that uh, he'd already been thinking about leaking some of this information, decided not to because of the election of Obama in 2008. So I found that curious. I want to get your guys' input on that. Well, I mean, it's certainly a kind of biographical inconsistency. And this whole thing about Snowden supposedly thinking about leaking documents in the period 2007 to 2009 or so when he was at the CIA, um, I don't buy it because... He's never leaked any CIA documents. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, did he, <clears throat> did he simply think about it but then never act on it at all? Um, it kind of doesn't really add up. Uh, why is it that he could have that kind of view, put it off because of Obama, then he supposedly changed his mind when he saw that Obama was just, you know, another national security state advocate, another you know, another Bush, another whoever. Um, but yet, then a year or so into the Obama administration, he's there online supposedly bad-mouthing whistleblowers and saying that they should be shot. I mean, something's not quite right here. And like you both said, it's, it's difficult to look through all of this smoke and mirrors, particularly at this stage, and try and figure out what it is that is right. Um, but there is an overwhelming feeling to me, at least, in almost everything I read about Snowden now, that there is something wrong here, something that just doesn't sit right with me. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, to me, the, the biography, I, I just, I can't look at that biography and jumping from job to job as he did and going up the ladder as, as he did so, so quickly, so precipitously, I can't look at that biography as anything but the biography of a scoop. Uh, sorry, a spook. <laughs> a scoop. <laughs> That's an interesting spoonerism there. Um, yeah. a, a spook. And and honestly, along the lines of an Ali Muhammad or something like that, where the, the biography is just in and of itself so improbable. And maybe I'm being too skeptical here, but honestly, I, I can't look at that uh, that career trajectory that he was on as anything other than than just uh, uh, obviously someone who was who was being guided I think from position to position yeah. in one way or another and uh, obviously I have nothing definitive to back that up with but I just can't look at the those those moves in any other way no I feel um, similarly man it's, it's it's remarkable that that someone with uh, with no high school diploma no uh, degree whatsoever uh, you know, as you as you mentioned in your podcast, Tom, you know, uh, in the in the military, in the army, uh, didn't complete anything ever. <laughs> Not didn't complete high school, didn't complete uh, any sort of university uh, degree, didn't complete uh, this, his army uh, training, and yet, uh, yeah, he did. You know, climb up that ladder fairly quickly. It um, yeah, it does raise some red flags, as we said earlier. It's just. Uh, I think we're all pretty much saying the same thing here. It's like something's not right <laughs> here, but we can't quite figure out exactly what it is. I mean, do do either of you entirely discount the whole uh, either the whole? Uh, well, I think I think Tom, you hit out you you touched on the whole uh, CIA angle, whether or not this is potentially some kind of turf war with between the CIA and the NSA. But do either of you completely discount the the, the Russian uh, FSB angle at this point? No, not at all. Um, I think 
I wouldn't discount several different angles. I mean, in the podcast I made, I was kind of hinting at the CIA ultimately being the ones pulling the strings here. But that's just because that's the nature of his biography as we know it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he was in the CIA before he got involved with the NSA. And then he had this, like James said, he had this sort of meteoric rise in the NSA. And that does smack of, particularly when he was actually a official cover operative, a spy, a secret agent working for the CIA. That does smack of, did the CIA plant him there in some way? And obviously that does get into this implication that a few people have talked about, that this is some kind of, if not necessarily a turf war, that this is the CIA hanging the NSA out to dry a bit. Mm. Because let's face it, if lots of people know about mass surveillance, that's probably better than them realizing that the CIA is committing mass murder. Um, If you've got to give them something, better to give them that. Um, But yeah. There is the possibility, uh, James, you talked with John Young about this, of some kind of private network. I mean, ultimately, for his whole time at the NSA, uh, Snowden was a private contractor. He was working for private companies, and that this may have been some kind of spying for hire operation or something like that. And yeah, of course, then there is the Russian angle. I think those are the three main possibilities. There are others. I wouldn't discount any of them at this point. How about you, James? I certainly wouldn't either. In fact, I I strongly suspect, I mean, certainly at this point, we know there has to be FSB involvement at some level in some way here. I don't think that uh, that what's happened in Russia could have happened without um, the watchful eye of the FSB being involved um, from his sojourn at the Moscow airport, where, again, he was somehow surviving and managing to to get by without being spotted once in, in the entire time. And uh, to the point where now he's got that uh, that uh, FSB linked lawyer who uh, accompanies him um, uh, around Moscow, uh, Natalie Kucharena, or whatever whatever that name is. So, um, so I, I mean, obviously there is some level of Russian involvement going on here, and uh, there's there's some interesting articles that have been written about the the Russian angle and and Snowden. As some people are saying, was sold out by WikiLeaks to the Russians, and then um, mm-hmm. basically people drawing ties between WikiLeaks and Russia. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that might be going well. I I don't discount it. Let's put it that way. It's certainly <laughs> within the realm of possibility, and I think there is some level of FSB involvement, despite what WikiLeaks is trying to tell people. Are Are we in agreement then that? Despite our questions about Snowden as an individual, or who, or you know, what to what end this is actually, uh, you know, going towards, are we in agreement that uh, overall this is having more positive effects than negative, or would either of you uh, say that uh, the opposite is true? Uh, as far as, I, if I as, far as the first, awareness of surveillance and whatnot. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I guess my, my initial response would be to say that um, it, it, obviously the, 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 the interest that's been generated uh, um, around the topic of, of uh, illegal surveillance and all of that is, is good. But I think it, it, it really does depend on the outcome. I don't think until, we, until that trump card is played, whatever that might be, I don't think we can judge what this operation, whether this operation has been a success from either the uh, the the ostensible um, uh, surface level analysis or from the the deeper false flag level, um, because obviously it's uh, the entire operation hinges on that trump card play, and I don't know 
obviously what the what the full operation is so i don't know whether or not that trump card is simply to have this uh, you know approved in one form or another through the judicial system or through some sort of congressional committee or whatever whether this expert review analysis that's going on right now that's going to propose these uh, milk toast uh, non-reform reforms is perhaps <laughs> what this is you know heading towards and and if if it if that is the operation then it probably has been a success from their perspective and a failure on our part because at the end of the day, when and if this is all normalized, that's, you know, we, we've lost. It doesn't matter if people have become momentarily interested in the subject. If it gets hardwired into societal you know, norms, then, then ultimately at the end of the day we lose. Although I, I'm willing to be open to the fact that this isn't even about that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think there may be other things that are going on here. And who knows how much of this information has been salted and maybe the NSA just isn't denying because it's in their interest not to deny this or that um, particular technology. So again, I think we, we don't have anywhere near enough information to be able to say whether or not anything good is coming from this tangibly. Other than we've seen people form some half-hearted protests, and, you know, that is good. I'm glad people are interested in the issue, but I just don't know whether this is going to amount to a hill of beans, depending on what the operation is really trending towards. I think that's a very fair and sober analysis. I don't think we've got anywhere near enough information yet to make the judgment as to, on balance, is this better or worse. Um, I think a lot of this simply comes down to what people decide how people decide to respond to this rather than how governments decide to respond to this because the answer to all of this ultimately to my mind i said this in the podcast is to stop using this technology so much to stop integrating your life with things that can be used to spy on you all the time because if you do that then they can't do it and so the question is kind of null and void Mm -hmm. um so so yeah, basically, I, I, we need to get off the grid and become survivalists. Not entirely. I don't mean that, Tom. Sure, sure. But in that direction, I certainly don't. I mean, I certainly don't have any problem with people getting off the grid and becoming survivalists. I'm quite in favor of it. But I recognize that for a lot of people, that's simply not going to happen right now. But yeah, the simple answer is, you know, leave your phone at home some of the time. Turn it off some of the time. <laughs> don't. Post scale it, scale it back some. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not saying don't have a phone because I admit they are useful things. But you know, you control it rather than having it control you, and it won't be constantly being used to spy on you. It's a relatively simple answer to my mind. As always, the hammer of truth guided swiftly and surely to the nail head by Tom Secker. Um, I agree. <laughs> I agree com- completely and wholeheartedly. This isn't at the end of the day about the governments or what they can do. It is about what we choose to do, um, it, uh, how how we choose to use this technology, and how we are complicit in that um, spying. If we are in full awareness of what's going on and yet continue to use it anyway, I mean that is just what does insanity. that say? Yeah, what does that say about? I mean, a, the larger questions about societal norms. We know that we're these these uh, uh, technologies are being used to surveil us at all times, and yet, for the sake of what convenience, we will keep using them. You know, Bruce Schneier gave a really good talk uh, on this issue. Uh, I think it was a few months back over at Columbia Law School, and uh, I saw it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> speaking of technology, uh, there you go. No, that's where I watched it. Um, so, no, but the, the, he gave a really good talk about how, you know, the, the difficult thing for many people to, to sort of accept is going to be, you know, basically stop using 
uh, iOS, uh, Apple, and, and, and Microsoft Windows products in generally. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. He was talking about encryption technologies. I mean, really, really, you know, uh, techie stuff. If you're not familiar with the the, jar, the jargon, it was a little difficult to follow sometimes. But uh, by at, at the end of the talk, he did, did conclude by talking about you know at the, at the lower end of that bell curve. It, it, it's basically that is is if you're using an Apple product or a Windows product, it's not secure. It'll never be secure, no matter what you do. Um, and if they if they want to get at that information, uh, they will. Now there are little things you can do if you want to keep using technology and uh, surf the internet. You can use uh, encryption technologies and Tor and things like that. He gave a talk about uh, the economics of this, and if more people start using encryption. Just by by sheer numbers, uh, it'll become more difficult. You'll make the the, the NSA or whoever uh, is doing this their tasks uh, that much more difficult. But just by using the, the the encryption technology, so there's that, I suppose. Yeah, there is that. I mean, ultimately, my approach on the internet, I don't really use encryption and Tor and those sorts of things. Not just because I have a bit of suspicion about where it is these things are coming from and what they really That's a are. Good point. Yeah. Uh, but but also because I'm just kind of I'm I'm open about what I'm doing. I'm I'm not doing anything dishonest. I'm not doing anything morally wrong. I may do some things that are illegal. I don't really know. But <laughs> um, I, I don't think of it in those terms. I think of it in terms of you know I, I'm uh, an in, an investigative researcher. I'm a, you know I'm into history, whatever. So I use it to further my interests and ultimately to try and further my life and if someone tries to arrest me for that then fine they can take me to court and that'll be my argument in defense of what i'm doing and i'm pretty sure it's going to be quite difficult for them to get a jury to convict me so um that's i i much as i say try not to use these technologies all the time um i do think we should still use them if we can use them for beneficial purposes to ourselves and i always try and use them for beneficial purposes to myself so i try not to use them for any frivolous thing so that's kind of my lesson in my from my own life and that's all i can really kind of offer to people is try and do it like that and i think you'll be all right i share the sentiment i i i'm not sure i share the optimism on that point um but but i agree uh, to a large extent i mean it's something that i've always said i'm completely open about um who i am and my name and and what i'm doing and the, the types of research i'm i'm doing and all of this and i'm not trying to hide any of that and i uh I understand the people who want to hide behind pseudonyms and think that if they use the encryption technology, etc., they'll never be, you know, identified in all of this. But I think it is a bit of a pipe dream. And anyways, I don't want to live in a society where I do have to sneak and skulk around despite not doing anything illegal. But just because there is a stigma attached to 9-11 truth or whatever it may be that I'm interested in researching? Absolutely not. I don't want to live in that type of society. So mm -hmm. if that's the type of society where you get thrown in jail for doing this, completely un unimmoral. <laughs> I should say moral, <laughs> shouldn't I? This completely moral, uh, morally um, uh, uh, compatible activity that has, that again, it may or may not break whatever ridiculous laws they decide to put in today or tomorrow or yesterday, but, uh, but it has nothing to do with immorality, then why should I be trying so desperately to protect that that uh that shroud around me but I, again i do i do respect people's wish for for privacy on things like that and i and um i do see the value of of using um 
ways of obscuring uh, our our identity, it, if only to make it harder for them to put all of these pieces together. Because another part of all of this, of course, is, you know, at the end of the day, maybe they don't even care particularly what you're researching, but they do want the data to be to be fed into the the big algorithms that are being developed behind the scenes. And I bring it back to the the. Um, um, that technology that's going to escape me right now that I've talked about many times, sentient world simulation and things like this, <laughs> which for whatever hype might be behind, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't, I think they want to hype up the capabilities of these types of things at this point, but I think they are heading in that direction. And I think one day there may be the possibility of constructing a virtual world out of the data that they get online that, that is, that does have predictive value. And I don't want to be a part of the creation of that algorithm. Um, and maybe I am passively so simply because I'm not trying to obscure or blur my identity online. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I, I think I see what both of you are saying about not wanting to live in a world where you have to use encryption, you have to uh, disguise your identity either online or in the real world or whatever. I certainly don't want to live in that world either. Um, but I, I feel that um, part of what both of you said could be misinterpreted or misconstrued as well, if I've got nothing to hide, I've got nothing to worry about. And I don't I don't think that, I mean, I know both of you, and I don't think that's what both of you are saying, but I think it could be misinterpreted that way. So I don't know if you want to uh, clarify that at all. But I think I think I, I, I got the gist of what both of you uh, mean uh, by, by what you uh, were describing. And, and unfortunately, you know, uh, as far as not wanting to live in that world or not living in that world, I, I, I think it's already begun to happen a bit. I mean, we've saw, we saw a few of those examples. We saw one example immediately after the best Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, Cameron D'Ambrosio, I think his name was, a 17-year-old kid, posted something on Facebook about uh, some rap lyrics and mentioned Boston bombing in them, and uh, he was promptly arrested. Uh, picked up. Uh, so it's already begun as far as what you can and cannot joke about or even talk about on the internet during sensitive times or sensitive moments. Brandon Robb's another case, another good example of that. Uh, he posted something on Facebook, got sent to the loony bin for it. Um, so uh, it's, it's, well, it's, okay. Let me, let me clarify then, because I was really responding to what, what Tom was saying, but you do raise an important point. And let me put this question to Tom then. I mean, we're talking about this in the context of the types of research that we do for our, our podcasts and right. that sort of thing, which yeah. of course is one thing, but what about, what about your medical data? What about your financial data? Obviously that's something that, that falls into a completely different category and something I presume you would not want to, to fall into anybody's hands. No, 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 of course I wouldn't, but um, yeah, okay, let, you're right, we should clarify that. It's not that I think if you have uh, nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear, because clearly in the war on terror par paradigm, everyone has a little bit of something to fear, and it's mostly the security state. Um, but it is more about, since this is already happening, we will only encourage it, I think, if we cower and try and go underground and try and disguise ourselves if we face it down and say no this is ridiculous i'm not doing anything wrong then mm. that's a the sort of the most basic way in which we can confront it and in, in which we can try and stop this and at least halt it if not reverse it reversing it might be you know a, <laughs> a plan for the future at this point halting it would be enough um and so it's it's more that that it's an attitude i think that we should have um rather than I'm telling people not to use these things, or rather than I'm saying don't worry about any of this, I'm saying do worry about it, but don't worry about it in a way that makes you shameful and makes you hide. 
worry about mm-hmm. it in a way that means you go, no, I'm going to empower myself and I'm going to say, no, this is, I, I don't want to live in this world and this is all ridiculous and so I'm going to face it down and say, this is wrong. I think that's a much better response, a much more mature and constructive and empowering response. Mm-hmm. No, I'd agree. I'd agree with you, Tom. And I think I, I, I you know, I think you clarified it, clarified it rather quite well. Um, you know, some I want to, I want to just move on if we can to something else I wanted to talk about. It, it relates though because uh, you brought this issue up, James, and so I'm going to throw it to you actually and let you take the lead on this. But basically, uh, we're talking about uncorking conspiracy. Does question everything actually mean? question everything and i think if i understood um your point on this correctly uh james then we may even be accused of doing this ourselves a bit in in our conversation of snowden earlier so um yeah i'll let you sort of explain what you mean by that yeah this is i mean this is a topic i've thought a lot about for for years now and i think there's an awful lot to explore here in fact probably too much for this conversation we're already coming on yeah (laughs) on 30 or 40 minutes here and i don't want to get into a whole other big topic that could really be a main topic of conversation. So perhaps we can keep that um, up the sleeve for maybe the next roundtable and we could cover some other points first because honestly there's so much that I want to say about that topic that I'm not sure I could squeeze it in right now. Gotcha. Okay, okay. Well, a little teaser. How how about this? I I actually, I just came across this um, AFP wire story that's extremely important that I think we all need to comment on. It was literally just posted to the web three hours ago. Growing beard popularity shaves Procter & Gamble sales. <laughs> Procter & Gamble Friday revealed its latest challenge to earnings glory. This time, it's a facial issue. So apparently, U.S. consumers are now so enamored of facial hair that Procter & Gamble's sales are actually hurting. Anyway, hmm. sorry, that was a attempted humor. And Conspirates, a conspiracy <laughs> of beards. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Beards against the new world order. I mean, Procter & Gamble, they're a, they're a complete bunch of bastards. It's true. So, and yeah, a good absolutely. Thing. This has got to be seen as a good thing. Descendants yeah? of uh, Clarence Gamble talking with uh, Margaret Sanger about eugenics. It, it really is. Let's stand up against them. By growing beards. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> this is the beginning of a beard movement, I think. This podcast right here will launch the, the uh, a, maybe a, a that growth. could be the title. Yeah, the beard movement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm yeah. sorry to completely derail any <laughs> attempted actual serious conversation there. Um, but uh, Tom, I think you had another topic of conversation for us. Uh, do you want to talk about this one now? Okay, let's talk about this one now. Um, I've been recently rereading the novels of Ian Fleming, supposedly of Ian Fleming at least, anyway, the James Bond novels, the original ones written in the 1950s. And it was just one of the things that struck me about it was how deeply and horribly in places misogynistic these these novels are. And it particularly ties in with the the topic of my latest podcast, which is the Mark Stone, Mark Kennedy case. This was a uh, undercover metropolitan police officer a secret agent who infiltrated the British anarchist movement for about seven years. And the most kind of uh, controversial part of this story is that he actually formed long-term relationships with several women within this movement. And obviously he wasn't who he said he was. And a lot of these women are now taking the Metropolitan Police to court saying, you know, we were deceived, we were betrayed, we were, you know, abused, we were treated really badly here. And they were absolutely right to. Um, And one of the things that... Uh, struck me when I was kind of piecing the timeline of all of this together was that when this case 
this attempt by these women to sue the Metropolitan Police got to the High Court and they were deciding will this be heard in a public court or will this be heard in a private secret uh, investigatory powers tribunal? It's like a secret court for intelligence agency staff. Um, one of the reasons that the High Court gave for it being a secret trial was that, in fact, this sort of behaviour does come under the legislation and guidelines for undercover agents in this country um, and that it had to be assumed that way because of the, the James Bond story that everyone identifies secret agents as having sex with lots of women. And I just thought what they've basically done there is made the misogyny of Ian Fleming's novels into a moral standard for undercover operatives in the real world. And I, I'm quite horrified by this. Um, and I can't help but wonder whether this was the point of it, whether this was the point of portraying women in, in this massively popular series of novels and obviously then incredibly popular series of films, portraying women in such a kind of disrespectful way where they are just discardable commodities that you pursue and then vanquish and then get rid of, um, whether that has helped set a standard that means that now you have the highest court in this country defending the behavior of a bunch of undercover policemen that's really morally abhorrent. It, it's, it's disgusting. Um, and it's just the way that all of these things tie together firstly fascinates me, but also appalls me, because I think this is the really, really dark side of the security state, is that they're not only spying on us, they're not only carrying out murders, they're not only carrying out false flag terrorism and all the rest of it, but they're also infiltrating completely innocent, peaceful groups of people and, if you like, sexually abusing them and then telling us, the public, oh no, this is all fine because Ian Fleming said so. <laughs> That's effectively the story that we've got here and it's, you know, how did we get to this point? It's, it really does bother me. It bothers me, you know, emotionally and morally. It really bothers me. So what, are you, what do you guys make of it? I'm kind of <laughs> ranting now. I, well, I, I, I concur, obviously. I mean, it, it is despicable that, that that would happen and that that would be justified in such a way. Although, I, I, I mean, my response, my initial response at any rate, would be to, to say that I wouldn't take that justification so seriously. I mean, obviously, it is serious because it's being presented by a judge in a court. I mean, obviously, that's... That's an important thing, but uh, but I, I I think it's just an attempt at justification for something that really is unjustifiable. So I, I, in that sense, it doesn't surprise me. But it is interesting, obviously, to think about that that portrayal in that light because uh, uh, the the James Bond character is obviously programmed so much of what we think we know about spy spycraft and spooks in general into our consciousness, into the collective unconscious, even at this point. That uh, that yes, things like that are. Perhaps they are taken for granted now. Well, of course, he's a he's a James Bond. He's gonna you know wine and dine and schmooze and sleep with lots of women. Um, yeah. And I think that that has just been so completely taken on board at this point that most people probably would have a response. Would would at least look at that judgment that the judge made and, and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I don't know if that was the purpose of that, but certainly it's the effect. And uh, mm -hmm. and at any rate, yes, it's been remarkably successful in the inculcation of that idea, hasn't it? It certainly has been very successful in that. I mean, what do you make of this, Guillermo? I mean, do you? Well, actually, you know, I'd like to to tie this back 
to what we were talking about earlier with Edward Snowden, because you mentioned to me, Tom, the other day that it wouldn't surprise you if Edward Snowden was a James Bond fan. So I'm curious to know what you meant by that. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the, the, the reportage of his uh, various uh, sexual exploits while posted all over the world. Uh, another interesting part of his biography that uh, was was reported on initially and then got you know forgotten about. Uh, I'm curious uh, as to what you make of that. Uh, well, actually, that was more me uh, drawing a potential <laughs> parallel with the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, because uh-huh. Snowden's biography is a bit similar to Lee Oswald's in certain key respects, you know, certain agencies that he worked for and certain locations he worked in and that kind of thing. Um, and obviously, Lee Harvey Oswald was a big James Bond fan. When uh, his one of his apartments was searched after the Kennedy assassination, they found a couple of James Bond books and this whole... There is this kind of bit of folklore about the JFK assassination that the night before the assassination, both JFK and Oswald were both reading James Bond books. I don't know if that's true. I don't think anyone will ever know if that's true, and it probably isn't. Um, but both men were fans of these books. And so I was just kind of joking, really, when I said that about Snowden. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he was a fan of these things, because let's face it, this is a man who spent his entire adult professional life working for the security state. So... Um, but quite, I think quite a lot of people who work in those industries and those agencies do actually read these things and are actually a fan of them. Um, they do seem to talk about them an awful lot in interviews, but I suppose that's the nature of their work. They can't really talk about that much, so they talk mm-hmm. about the fiction instead. It gives them a vocabulary and a way of talking about it and presenting it to the public. At any rate, the idea that Ian Fleming was misogynist is just ridiculous. You don't think characters like Pussy Galore and Holly Goodhead were, were well thought out and really sensitive portrayals of women in literature? Come on, Tom. Well, it was more the scenes of, um, like in From Russia with Love, there is a scene in Turkey where two uh, large-breasted gypsy women basically <laughs> tear each other to shreds and rip each other's clothes off in some sort of orgy sex violence orgy thing that James Bond is just kind of casually standing there watching happen um, and actually quite enjoying and there's, there's some really ugly stuff if you go through the text there's quite a lot of mentions of rape but in a positive way as though this is some kind of sexual accomplishment you know it's not subtle this misogyny uh, yeah. it's not, no, I, I agree completely. It is it is ridiculous and blatant. But um, but I mean, I, I'm intrigued by your assertion that this might have been part of what Fleming was actually setting out to do. Um, certainly, we do know that he was involved intimately with the intelligence services, and there's been a lot of allegations about you know his actual work for them. Um, but uh, and so I have no doubt that the the, the James Bond character, you know, it, it was intended to have various effects in terms of um, introducing various parts of the spy narrative that they want in, inculcated in the public. I'm just not sure about the misogynist angle in particular, because I would imagine if you looked at any sort of trashy pulp pop fiction from the period, I mean, there would be, you know, copious amounts of similar um, regrettable mis- misogynist uh, crap in there in there as well so i'm just interested in that that particular assertion on your part well it kind i kind of draw this from uh ian fleming's character himself i mean the man himself his his personal biography is one where he doesn't treat women with any respect but it's also because i feel that there's kind of two different things going on here in terms of normalization of the security state the first is the existential normalization, and that's something that the James Bond novels very much explicitly did. They were the first books ever where the CIA were referred to. 
the CIA's public image was initially given through these books, and Ian Fleming was big friends with Alan Dulles, so that's no coincidence. Uh, likewise, MI6, although they're not explicitly referred to as MI6 in the books, that's who they are, they were also first introduced to the public in that kind of a way. So we have the existential revealing, if you like, but you also have the, the moral normalization and the moral revelation of the security state, and that's always done in such a way as to heroize them. And well, that's, so, I mean, that, let me just interject. That is the, the one thing that I think everyone associates with 007. What is he? What is he? He's licensed to kill, right? I mean, it right. is baked into the cake. This is someone who has the moral authority to kill whoever he wants because he's working on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm, exactly. And so I can't help but think that the misogyny is not something that is just reflective of, like you say, 1950s pulp fiction. Um, I think it, it's. I think these things were put together very carefully. Um, I don't think Ian Fleming was the only person involved. And when you know his publisher was being spied on by MI5, and pretty much everyone who was involved in making the early James Bond films was ex-intelligence of some sort. So this whole thing strikes me as potentially being an intelligence operation. And it's not like there's the occasional flicker of this in these books. It's absolutely. It, it runs through them even more than Bond's moral authority to kill. Um, so I think it is a, it's a massive theme in the books, and therefore it can only be, be put there deliberately and knowingly. And so therefore, the obvious implication would be this is about some kind of uh, perhaps crushing of the, the feminine uh, by the security state. Because, of course, the security state is the, if you like, the ultimate masculine institution. And so, therefore, the way in which female spies are portrayed and women are portrayed in general in spy fiction is crucial to their whole moral trajectory. That would be kind of my analysis at this point. I know this doesn't sound particularly certain, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't entirely convinced, but that's my thinking on it. Well, I, I mean, if we're going out on that, that kind of... Uh speculative limb mm -hmm. shall we say I, I think we could go we could go even further and tie this back i mean what are of course the secret um the secret agencies other than outgrowths of the secret societies of old i mean most explicitly so when it comes to something like skull and bones populating the oss which became the cia uh, and mm -hmm. that's that sort of connection i'm not sure about the mi6 um, connections to to various secret orders in in britain but um uh, obviously these are and have always been i mean male male-dominated groups. I mean, at this point, they're, they're letting women into skull and bones, etc., but obviously completely 100% male uh, back in the day. And of course, um, with all of the implications of various all-male club activities um, that, that have been alleged at various times between various of the members, it really does create the question of whether there is um, a, a thoroughly, thoroughly um, woman-hating element that has um, populated these these ranks and continues to try to put forward that narrative. And if so, as you say, this ruling by this judge is remarkably successful in that regard. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're right. Those associations are there and the secret agencies are outgrowths of secret societies. In this country, certainly in terms of MI6, the so-called Foreign Intelligence Service, that's all Oxford and Cambridge, which is kind of like the Yale, you know, of this country. So, the association is there. Yeah, pretty much everyone in the first half of the 20th century who was MI6 either went to Oxford or Cambridge or certainly was privately educated. And, of course, James Bond was privately educated. That's in his story. Um, Ian Fleming, likewise. So it was this very posh 
male-only club in its inception and for the first decades of its existence. And I think the CIA was quite similar. And I don't think these institutions will ever be able to shrug off those values, however much they might now trumpet, you know, we've had two female heads of MI5. Yeah, so that's, what, that somehow changed the face of these institutions? <laughs> it has literally changed the face of these institutions. It hasn't done anything about their culture or their morals or their willingness to do horrendously morally corrupt things. Um, and it's likewise, uh, I don't know, gay people in the military. Uh, I think that's a kind of, it's one of those things that you use to sort of give a slightly liberal, slightly softer edge to an institution that's ultimately quite barbaric. Um, I'm not saying gay people shouldn't be allowed to join the military. I'm not sort of taking such a partisan position on that kind of an issue. But you know what I mean, that just because they've softened their PR a bit doesn't mean that these institutions have fundamentally changed. I think they're just as kind of backward and posh and elitist and aristocratic as they ever were. No, no, the, yeah, no, the, the secret society angle to this has really got me uh, thinking. It's, it's really interesting, and the power of predictive programming, obviously. But we, we touched on this previously uh, in another podcast on the issue of uh, Illuminati chic and, and sort of talking about whether or not this is a, just a byproduct of the times. Is it simply just what sells? Or is there some level of, of intentionality there in normalizing uh, these sorts of things? So I can't help but think of that within this context of what you guys are talking about uh, uh, and going back to Ian Fleming and the James Bond novels and how that uh, normalized to an extent the, the misogyny and everything else that you're discussing. So uh, we see this happening again uh, today uh, in, in other ways. So I don't know. It's a curious, it's a curious, curious issue. It's, uh, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't know if I have a, a definitive answer as to whether or not it is being done in some way intentionally to normalize the idea of, uh, of these secret societies and, and sort of uh, uh, you, know, you know, make it make it hip and chic and okay. Uh, or again, as I said earlier, if it's just simply what sells and what people are sort of uh, into and what's trending. Uh, again, a, a byproduct of of the age. Hmm. I don't know. I suppose this is the point at which I should come out and confess that I have never read a James Bond novel and probably <laughs> never will. <laughs> it's all right. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what we have to. I'll defer to you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw all the uh, the movies growing up, obviously, but I didn't ever bother to read them, and I uh, I have no and intention to do so. And Sean, uh, and Sean in fact, Connery I had watched the movies. <laughs> I was going to say the Sean Connery had one hell of a beard, by the way. So just want to make that <laughs> connection. <laughs> mm. I didn't know he was boycotting Procter and Gamble. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we've successfully diffused the uh, the seriousness of that topic. But Tom, any 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 other thoughts that you want to bring up in that regard? Um, not right now. But like I say, I am rereading all of these books, and so this will be something that I'll pick up on on in clandestine and on spy culture as I'm kind of digging through these, trying to figure out more and more. Oh, one other thing, actually, no, that's just struck me. Uh, in the very first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, just as a kind of weird, silly seven seven tieback. Uh, there is an accidental suicide bombing. Um, so, yeah, you could argue that 7-7 was, to some extent, predicted by James Bond. But I'm not actually making that argument. I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of being silly. <laughs> Interesting. Well, that ties into the... There's an entire literature of accidental bombings, isn't there? And we, we talked a little bit about that in the film literature New World Order we did on The Secret Agent. So, Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, ties into that. And that book Great. was dedicated to H.G. Wells. 
If I knew that, I I have forgotten that fact because you just surprised me by saying that. Well, I'm glad to be of service, Chief. <laughs> I must have known that, but I uh, that it's was not a piece of information. Yeah, <laughs> I assume so. But it, that was not a piece of information that was at the forefront of my mind. I I I swear I didn't know that. That's in very interesting, extremely interesting. And you're the Joseph Conrad fan. I hated that. <laughs> I yeah, I am a Joseph Conrad fan, although only for his literary talents, not necessarily for his uh, involvement with H.G. Wells or the like. Very interesting. I'll have to look more into that. And we've fallen off the cliff. All right, there it is. There's yeah, there's the car if crash. If we can just insert the car crash sound yeah. there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation, but I think it's about time for me to start wrapping it up on my end. Yeah, 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 me yeah, too, yeah. me too. It I think is, it's about uh, that it's one o'clock in the morning here. <laughs> yeah, I almost forgot. You have done admirably well, Sir Secker. You may retire to your rest. Thank you. I will. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, we're going to have to take this one home. <laughs> sure, let's, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Well, no, I want to thank both of you for for doing this again and uh, thank those of you out there listening for sticking with us uh, and and tuning in to this podcast. And hopefully we'll do this again in the not-too-distant future. And, uh, yeah, if you'd like, please do uh, feel free to email us, either myself or James or Tom. Send us an email or hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or something. And, let me know what you would like us to tackle the next time we get together for a, a supercast between the three of us. So come and back and join us. Listen, viewer, viewer feedback on uh, on the title for this. Give, that's give a us good, a good that's name a good for this roundtable. <laughs> let's Perhaps do that. Let's let's. We want with the word beard in it. Somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that might be the winner. Yeah, give us three or four, and we'll put it up on a poll or something. And if it's got the word beard, extra points for you. <laughs> All right, so come back. Join us next time. This has been Traces of Reality Radio or a special edition of Traces of Reality Radio, yet to be titled Supercast. It's up to you. You decide. Come back Before and join we us go, next we time. mention our websites because I'll be posting this on CorbettReport.com. Yes, so I want people to know where to contact both of you. Okay, fine. I'll go first. Uh, I'm Tom Stecker. My web- websites are investigatingtheterror.com and spyculture.com, and I do a podcast called Clandestine, which is on Spy Culture and on YouTube. And I'm Guillermo Jimenez, TracesOfReality.com. With Traces of Reality Radio, you can also catch uh, Demanufacturing Consent for the podcast I do up on BowlingFrogsPost.com. And I'm James Corbett, CorbettReport.com and FukushimaUpdate.com that is being updated on a very regular basis by my uh, good friend and associate Brock West of APPerspective.net. So I hope people are checking into that as well. And that's a wrap. Oh, oh, we're off? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, now we are. Yeah. We'll leave that in, but okay. now we are. <laughs> All right. I've got to say, this, this round table is, is nowhere near as slick as the BFP one. <laughs> no, no, but I, I enjoy that. <laughs>